Um, <clears throat> and, and it's always a good reminder. I had a, a reason to be reminded of this this week, so take the opportunity. Um, it's always a good reminder that, that um, you know, those of us even who are on stage, who serve, no matter what our role is in the kingdom and His body, like it's, this is not really about us. We're imperfect and flawed and and, uh, and so, in fact, um, you know, we always want to be careful to remind everybody this is not, you know, this isn't about bringing glory to humans or to people or, or whatever. In fact, um, the Apostle Paul wrote about that a couple thousand years ago. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says in verse, starting in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Always a good reminder that, that um, I'm, not, I'm not the pastor here because I'm the most Christian-y person present. I'm not the most, even the most godly person present or whatever. There are going to be um, people who are their, their relationship, their intimacy with Christ far um, outstrips my own, and that certainly should be the case, especially if they've been a believer longer than I have. And so it's just a good reminder. And uh, so for Exhibit A, um, last week, at least last week, I used the term apocryphal a bunch of times to describe the kind of literature that we're looking at right now through Daniel. And I would say that's apocryphal literature is when you see the veil um, opened up, and God shows us something going on behind the scenes or in a special way. Um, so every time I use the word apocryphal, the word I should have been using was apocalyptic. They're two different words. Now, they overlap in a lot of ways, and it's not that apocryphal is wrong completely. It, however, is also not right completely. Apoc- uh, apocalyptic is the word I meant to be using. So partway through the week, I guess when Chris Sherrod got a chance to watch the sermon, I just get this text that says, I'm it just said, did you mean apocalyptic? And so when I went back and looked, I was like, yes, in fact, that's what I meant. All the times I said apocryphal, and no one, no one but Chris caught it. No, no one, none of the rest of you. I'm so disappointed in everybody, um, especially myself. I did, however, hear that I also, uh, much more importantly, and as a much bigger flub, I referred to the guy who is reading the book in Princess Bride as the father, not the grandfather. So um, that was even a bigger myth. So that's right. Okay, so uh, both of those are the case. It's funny, I always hear about those. I, I think I could probably invent a book of the Bible sometimes, and maybe I wouldn't get caught. But when I say something like, y'all remember when I said Nehemiah was a bullfrog? Boy, I heard about that one. I'll just tell you. Or uh, when Jim Morrison can't get any satisfaction. Yeah, I heard about that. That wasn't him. So, uh, y'all keep me on my toes. Serious, in, in seriousness, what I said is true. Um, we're not up here because we're perfect paragons of, of uh, godly virtue, but uh, we, have, we do have the opportunity to come up as just vessels of clay, jars of clay, that hopefully where our cracks are, God's light shines through. And so I hope you have that same mindset as you're leading and teaching and serving in the community. Um, you're not presenting yourself somehow as perfect or flawless, uh, at least you're not supposed to be, um, and instead the opposite. So <coughs> we get to embrace and love the fact that God can make use even of us. Um, on that note, jumping into uh, the book of Daniel and uh, chapter 7, we'll wrap up chapter 7 here starting in verse 19. So we've already talked about this beast a couple of times. We're going to talk about him again. Daniel keeps asking about him, and so he keeps getting answers about him. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, Daniel says. 
which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. So as we were saying all those times, when I use the wrong term, apocalyptic literature is often very strange. This is a great example of it, this beast, this terrifying beast that seems like the others, but not like the others. The others, it's, it's like its companions, it's scary, it's destructive, it's horrifying. But this one has this weird horn that then grows a mouth and eyes and begins to speak and engage all of this strangeness that you're experiencing in the midst of this. But this one's reign ends, this fourth, fourth beast reigns in not with just another human empire, but instead with the Ancient of Days stepping in and, and taking over, judging this fourth beast and this horn. And that's what goes, that's how this one ends, and we see this pattern play out. Its reign of terror ends with the Ancient of Days, and judgment given in favor of God's people, and the world empire is given to them, not just to another emperor, another human emperor, but to God's people. The horn that was little now seems greater than the others in Daniel's estimation. And so we again, we go back. Verse 21, And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. There we are again. The same pattern showing up verse after verse. The beast rises up in power. God's people are in war with him. He hates God's people. And they face crisis and defeat. And then God steps in and set things right. We saw that twice already, just in those two verses. We've already seen it a couple of times in this passage. So, please note that this last phrase, that the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. We do go through phases as God's people where the world seems to be winning. This is not new. It's happened over and over again. From as long as there have been such a thing as God's people, this has been the pattern. This is another one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel message fails. It fails. God's Word tells us that God's people, sometimes the world rises up and gains power and puts a leader in position, and that leader with all of his power wars against God's people, wars against his saints, and wins prevails, gains victory. Now, it's important that we don't ever become part of that victory. That is vital. It's part of why God gave us the ministries that He did. It's part of why God gave us, for example, friendship. Part of why God gave us community in the church. It's part of why God gave us marriage. So that we would have somebody to stand shoulder to shoulder with as we face these hardships. Friends that we could go to, a church body that we could go to. But this is going to get ugly as we continue to look at how this plays out. The prosperity gospel will fail you if you trust it. This is why we lose heart sometimes. It's because we trust the gospel to do or be something that it isn't and wasn't ever intended to be. Right here we see the part of this pattern that's going to happen all throughout Scripture is that you have this great powerful leader, this worldly leader who rises up, and God's people will suffer defeat. This is happening today. Christians are dying in droves every single day from persecution. It's hard to measure an exact number. There are massive numbers that are counted that are probably 
um, exaggerated or not actually straight on. Christians dying aren't necessarily persecution, uh, so it's hard to know what counts as persecution and what doesn't, um, specifically targeted at Christians, but several thousand Christians, um, probably several million Christians every year die under persecution to this day. In fact, most years of, of Christian history, if you asked in what year were most Christians martyred for their faith, the correct answer is always this year. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. This is always going on. Well, the prosperity gospel, is it failing them? No, it just doesn't exist as truth. Christians are prevailed against, ground down, killed, starved, suffering. Thus he said, verse 23, as for the fourth, king, the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down the three kings. So there have been several times in history we talked about the most likely first application or first um, expression of this fourth beast would have been the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, which we've talked about in the last few weeks. And again, we'll have to unpack that even further in coming weeks. But, but the Roman Empire, which certainly was described um, correctly, people might have made claims, therefore, that Rome or its descendants will then at some point out of the ancient Rome, ten kingdoms will rise. And from those ten kingdoms, eleventh one will rise and drive out three of the kings, defeating or destroying three of the kings. There had, this has played out, more or less, multiple times. And we've seen that you can set aside the early Roman provinces into ten. But, but really, you're kind of not exactly. Sometimes there's eleven, sometimes there's nine. Depending on which historian divides them out, the Romans, it's not like we could say, like, clearly there are 50 states. The Romans did not clearly divide out into provinces that stayed the same long periods of time. They shifted. Every time someone died, the provinces got shifted around. It's more like counties and gerrymandering and that kind of stuff. It gets shifted all the time. And so are there times that there were 10? Sure. Are there times that the 11th one rose up? Yeah. Are there times when it conquered others to get there? Sure. This has happened. Some of you can remember back when the European Union got started. How many of you remember that there was a little bit of, a, of one of those little eschatological, meaning end times, panics that happens in the Christian church every time something looks like it's going to fit? And you get the European Union comes up, and there was a point when there were 10 nations in the European Union. Nobody else? I remember when that was a big deal. Um, again, you go like, wow, there, there it is. Well, now there's, I mean, there's 27 now. So, uh, you know. That's the kind of case. There have been moments in history when you're like, this is it, and maybe it was. And maybe it's like these other things that there's a design pattern that happens over and over where these things play out, and it looks like this could be it, and maybe this is the one, and then it turns out not to be the one. We're going to talk more about that. This, this, that's going to show up over and over again through the rest of chapter 7. Instead, let's look back at Daniel. So let's imagine if we can, because we're going to come back to him a couple of times. Here's Daniel, all alone. This is early on in the rule of Belshazzar. We've talked about that. He's probably, it's been many decades since he was exiled. He literally, you ever thought about this? Literally, probably, Daniel is looking around now, not at those who were exiled with him for the most part, and maybe not even to a lot of their children, but a lot of their grandchildren. 
He now has, he is surrounded by young people who have never been to the promised land. They've never been home to Israel. And his heart is broken in all of this. And now he's hearing, not only have God's people been exiled for all this time, but now God is giving him a dream that lets him know this, it's going to get worse. You think you're suffering now? Wait till God's people face this empire. What a discouraging and dark time this must have been for Daniel. We're going to get to see, and Daniel's kind enough, we'll see at the end of this little talk here, he's kind enough to let us in on how he's feeling. So we'll come back to that. Daniel is seeing this vision from the future of a little but great and loud mouth horn. Verse 25, it keeps describing him, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Isn't it interesting language? Doesn't that sound like too up-to-date, wear us out? You're going to wear them out. Is that, was that the terminology your mom used? Yeah, I got, that, I got that terminology sometimes when I was growing up. You know what, when you get home, your dad's going to wear you out type of thing. I knew what that meant. Um, it had nothing to do with like, new clothes. Um, it's, it's, here's what's interesting. In the, <clears throat> in the Aramaic here, Bilal, to wear down, to make weary. <clears throat> the physical, it's a mental term apparently, but the physical word, which is very similar, It literally means to grind something down, to grind it into powder, to wear it away. A clothing that's threadbare, or or if you're a Hobbit fan, like butter spread over too much bread, right? That there's just worn down to nothing, to a nub, to a stump, like there's just, there's very little left. It's a powerful word, and it's an exhausting word. The thought that there's going to be an empire someday that is going to declare war against God's people and he's going to wear us down. The level of exhaustion will be intense. You just can't win, is the feeling. So again, notice, this is the design pattern we see all throughout it. Keep listening. And shall think to change the times and the law, this ultimate, he sees himself as the ultimate influencer. So going back, he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Okay, but your students, you've been listening. There's a pattern. It's bad. There's a king that rises up, gains great power, a worldly power that gains great strength. We go around the cycle. The people of God are going to be ground down. We'll come back to that language a lot, I think. Ground down. So you should know what's about to happen. What's the, verse, what's the next verse going to talk about? Without looking, what is it going to say? It's going to be about what? No, we didn't get this. Starts bad. Great power against God people. Then comes the Ancient of Days to judge and make things right. We see it over and over again. Through this whole chapter, Daniel keeps asking, okay, but tell me more about this king. Okay, well, Daniel, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be this king... And he's pretty horrible, and he's going to declare himself against God's people, and he's going to persecute them, and then, and then God's going to come in. It's not going to be another worldly power that ends him. It's going to be God himself that comes in and declares this right and sets it right and gives now the kingdoms over to his people. And Daniel says a few verses later, can you tell me more about this fourth beast? And the angel goes, sure. So it, it's going to be that there's this king who's he's going to gain great power, and he's going to declare himself against God's people, And he's going to grind them down, and then the Ancient of Days is going to come in and judge 
him and set things right. And Daniel goes, what else can you tell me about this fourth king? And the angel goes, well, I mean, he's going to, so there's going to be this king and he's going to rise up with great power and he's going to declare war against God's people. And then God's people are going to eventually, he's going to step in and change this. And there's not going to be another worldly power. It's going to be God himself. This is the pattern we see all through this chapter. So you should know the next phrase Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away and be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. See it? That's the pattern. It's not only the pattern in Daniel 7, it's the pattern of scripture And if you're a historian, you know it is the pattern of human history. As great leaders rise up, they turn against God's plan and God's purposes and God's kingdom, and then they're brought down. And eventually they will be brought down not by another mighty power, not by another human power, but by God Himself. He'll be against God's people for some time. The phrase, time, times, and half a time, we will get to unpack greatly later. <clears throat> but the court of the Ancient of Days will sit in judgment. It's this Bible theme, and especially an apocalyptic theme. Here's part of why. Remember that one of the images we get a lot in Scripture, when human beings are at their worst, we're like beasts. We are, we're like animals, like wild animals. What makes us human is that we bear the image of God. It is God's grace that allows us to behave like something other than animals. And the more, the more self-reliant we become, the more dependent upon ourselves we are, the more we trust in human wisdom and human leadership, we devolve. We become more like animals. We tear things down. We steal things. We destroy things. We betray one another. We burn stuff to the ground. Isn't it amazing that humans are just not very far from that? It's always amazing to me to see that. We keep thinking of ourselves as, oh, look how highly advanced we are now here in 2020. Yeah, not so much, huh? It turns out we're still fallen, frail creatures, easily offended, demanding our own way. We're really not that far from the beasts. The only thing that makes us different from the animal kingdom is the grace of God. And when God steps in and gives us the opportunity to live as something more than animal, human. Animals with a divine image and the divine flair. So anytime you get, you're often going to get in Scripture this picture of a beast when you see humans gathering together in their own power. We see this picture. Again, remember what happened with Nebuchadnezzar? When we're studying him, when he declares himself, this is all about me. I did this. This is all mine. I'm really the apex of all humans. I have control over everything. And in an instant, God says, You don't even have control over yourself. I speak one word, and you're eating grass, my friend. That's how God works in the midst of this. We are that far from being beasts. And we see this in this passage. So look look at how that continues. John, the Apostle John, 600 years later, is going to write the book, 700 years later, is going to write the book Revelation. In Revelation, I believe John is given essentially the same image, the same dream, the same vision that Daniel was. Here's how, again, apocalyptic literature 
pulling back the veil. It's confusing and weird and hard to describe. And so John's going to do his best, but listen to the similarities here. As John describes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell on the earth. Also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. See, once again, this great and mighty beast that's going to rise up with great power and just seem to be defeating God's people themselves. Revelation 17, in its entirety, which we're not going to read all of it, is about relationship between this beast and, and this image of a woman who is called the prostitute. She represents the, the fleshly nature of humans, another representation, though in human form, of the beast in us, the addictive, um, the, the one who takes advantage of others, who sells herself for gain. This is the, this picture of these two together. And in fact, she is given a special name here in, Dan, in Revelation 17, which for those of us who are students of Daniel will appreciate. Ready? Revelation 17. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting in, on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. To us, that's just weird, but to John, it was terrifying. The image of this mighty beast, destructive, horrific, and combined with him, allied with him, is this woman who, is, who is, represents the darkness of mankind turning against one another. And the thing they have in common, they have one thing in common. You remember when we went and studied John, and we discovered this passage where the Sadducees, who hated the Pharisees, who hated the Herodians, there's a scene where the three of them get together because they're united by one cause. And that's their mutual... Their, 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 combined hatred of Jesus Christ. Um, so he's, you know, once again, the great unifier of Jesus Christ. He's able to turn everyone against him, no matter how much they hate each other. You have something like this here. What does the woman and the beast, what do they have in common? The blood of the saints. They hate the followers of God. So I think it's, it's worth mentioning this ultimate expression of the beastly tendency in us, kingdoms and empires these examples that we see, barely human beasts. So it's, I think it's good for us to recognize this, this earthly power that is represented in these images when we look around us, the, the, the weakest 
saddest, um, most evil aspects of the human tendency. I do want to take a second and let you know that as we're going to start this conversation, as we work through this conversation, there's a natural fear that hits when we start talking about this. One, it's weird and dark and kind of gross and all that kind of stuff, and so that has an effect on us as it's supposed to. But there's a name given to this rotation throughout history, throughout God's church. The great power, the great leader who rises up, who declares war against God and His people, and then who is brought low and judged. And that pattern that happens, the name for that pattern is the Antichrist. Now, even just the term Antichrist puts a little bit of a chill in those of us who are in the church, right? It's, we've read books and we've, we've, we've seen movies and we've, and we've uh, um, heard it in music and discussed. And it's just one of those, I don't know, weird, dark things within the Christian um, theology, this idea of this Antichrist. So I want to look at, at what's being talked about here, but I want you to notice something. I don't want you to have a fear response. Here's a specific, here's a specific fear response I want you to be able to avoid. Um, that you avoid this fear of accidentally joining the Antichrist team, okay? Let's get that out of our heads. Um, if, you, if you've got that going on, so when you get that Facebook post or whatever, which used to be an email, which before that was a chain letter, warning you against anything that, that could, you could cause you to accidentally take on the mark of the beast, Right? That like as if you're going to someday look down and realize you're wearing the same jersey as the Antichrist and you didn't mean to. Like it was a total action. You're like, oh no, I didn't mean to get the credit card number with three sixes in it. I didn't know that was going to condemn me to hell forever. I, was, I just didn't know. That's not going to happen. It's not how this works. The Antichrist is not someone you're accidentally going to follow. He is one who declares himself an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. You're not, gonna, you're, you're not even going to get some chip put in your hand that has your credit card number on it or a tattoo on your forehead for people to scan, and that's going to be you accidentally joining the bad guys. Now, there may be reasons not to, not to do those things, but that's not it, right? It's not theological. It's not you're going to go, oh, no, I just thought I was going to go shopping. I didn't realize I was joining, getting the mark of the beast. Like, that's not how that's going to happen. So don't get that fear out, and when you get that post... Like, don't, don't panic when you get whatever that is. Is it possible that an antichrist in the future will use those type of tools? Of course. He's used all of them up so that everyone's been available to them so far when they come up, right? That's not, of course they're going to use that stuff. But we don't have to live in fear of accidentally going, getting to heaven and going, hey, I followed you all my life. And go like, yeah, but you got that your license plate with three sixes in it. You can't now. You're sorry. Like, you blew it. That's like, don't. Don't let that get to you with that kind of fear. Let's find out what the Antichrist really is. We find the term in 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Design patterns, rotations, cycles. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. You've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, fa- the Son has the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
John is drawing some lines in the sand here to understand. The, the term Antichrist represents a whole mass of people. There are lots of them, apparently some of them coming out of the church. There, was, there were all kinds of issues of new offshoot religions, people who didn't love the teachings of Jesus and stick with them. They wanted to kind of adapt them and have them fit in with what they preferred or what their religion they wanted it to be. And John is calling those people antichrists, people who go out from the church and go, I've got a better gospel, and my gospel involves this. And John is saying, listen, they're antichrists. And then he references an antichrist. There's one, and because we know there's one, things are wrapping up. I think that means, we can understand that means the cycle is going, and John knows it. And there's someone in the world at that time who represents that. He gets all kinds of names throughout Scripture, like the antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And of course, there'll be a final version of that. That's kind of logically necessary if time is going to end for us. But at some point, there will be a, the word, before the world ends, there'll be a final one who steps up, maybe the greatest one, maybe the, um, the one who, the, who most perfectly fulfills all the prophecies about this. The pattern of the beast stands in all of its might against its final opponent, God. The beast's wrath is always directed against the things of God, the people of God, the truth of God, the person of God and any who follow Him. His kingdom is the world, and the world and He are a product of one another. This idea of the Antichrists, they are the ones who support the kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of Christ. Later in the same book, First John says this, Beloved, <clears throat> do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know the, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you see the pattern again? The Daniel 7 pattern? The design pattern? There's an Antichrist. He's in the world. Little children, we face the persecution of this. They are dying. The Christians are dying in droves at this time. But what does John end with as he goes all the way around the pattern? Don't be afraid. You're from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Finishing out that design pattern. As Christians, we always have to remember, no matter where we are in this cycle, the cycle always ends in the same place. And eventually, the massive cycle of this will end in one final place, which is the judgment back in Daniel 7. How about this one? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, <clears throat> not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come, and no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There you go. Here's the model. The model is at some point this person steps up proclaiming themselves to be God, that there's no God higher than him. He is the ultimate expression 2 John 1.7, to continue this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Jesus uses the term false Christs. 
Like in Matthew 24, then anyone who says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Again, we see this pattern. It continues throughout. Later, uh, earlier in Matthew 25, 24, Jesus uses a term that we're going to really have to unpack in a few chapters. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We're going to see that phrase, he says, from the prophet Daniel. We'll see it in Daniel 9, 11, and 12. But here's an example. The natural tendency, the natural temptation, we talked about this, when armies show up at a city, what do you do? If you're, if you're a civilian and armies are coming, where do you go? Well, you go into the city. That's where the walls are. That's where the defenses are. You go into the city. But Jesus tells his followers, when you see this coming, don't go into the city. Run for the hills. You see, Jesus knew that though this design pattern had happened before, like with Antiochus Epiphanes we talked about last time, and we'll talk more about, he also knows it's coming again. It's going to be fulfilled again in such a way that's so closely mirrored. When the, when the Roman emperor Titus shows up around in the late A.D. 60s and besieges the city of Jerusalem, and as he was coming, fortunately for the Christians at the time, most of them said, this could be it. So they fled for the hills, whereas most of the Jews near Passover went into the city. And the city was walled off. He then came in and cleansed it, killing thousands, and probably cleansed the temple mount after it was torn down and destroyed, cleansed the temple mount by sacrificing at least three animals, one of which would have been a pig, to the standards of his own army, worshiping his own army with animal sacrifices. This is one of those that's hard in history to deny that it happened, because if you go to Rome, I think you've got the picture. If you go to Rome, Titus's victory arch includes this shot. Kind of hard to deny that at some point Titus went to Jerusalem and sacked the temple and stole all the stuff out of the temple. There's not a lot of other menorahs worth mentioning around the world, huh? So this is what happened just as Jesus predicted that it was going to, just as Daniel predicted that it was going to, and others too, that this design pattern was going to be played out. Titus was an antichrist. Maybe not the last one, not the antichrist, but an antichrist for sure. We're going to see examples of this all throughout Daniel. But I want to lay the groundwork here. We'll, we will unpack a little more about Titus later. The birth pangs, the cyclical thinking. And even, I will just stop and say, you know, I'm, I'm leading this conversation on Wednesday evenings uh, for Skeptics Anonymous. Even skeptical thinking, I think it's okay that there's some part of us that watches other, sometimes even other Christians running around doing and saying silly things and offensive things and weird things in the name of trying to be right about something in that moment. That they, they want to be right about that in that moment, and so they can say and do some pretty silly things. With a simple Google search, um, I found a lot of candidates for the Antichrist. I know you're not surprised by this. Um, there are some great ones of early church fathers. Some of the early church fathers thought that maybe Nero, um, the, the emperor, Arius, one of the great heretics, Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, Constantine, interesting choice, um, Pope Clement III and Pope Gregory VII each thought the other one was the Antichrist. Um, they both proclaimed that about each other. You get some fun moments in Catholic history like that. 
Um, but a real common one was the papacy itself, as, as the Protestant movement came along, that a lot of people thought that just, this, just Rome as the Pope and everything that had to do with the Pope, that's the Antichrist. Um, um, I've talked to Paul before, we've kind of laughed about it. I have one, uh, one commentary that I look at sometimes, but he, that guy is not even in doubt of that. Every time the beast is used, Antichrist is used, any of that kind of stuff, he just says, this is the Pope. Like, there's no question in his mind. Like, one option, no, no, it's the Pope. So, Okay, so uh, emperors, kings, presidents. In fact, um, I found one guy who referenced that he found evidence that every king except Gerald, every president except Gerald Ford had been uh, surmised to be the Antichrist. And those of you who remember Gerald Ford understand why no one thought he was going to be the Antichrist, right? (laughs) So just with a quick search, um, so again, you know, you, you always appreciate when Christians go out of their way to avoid being unnecessarily offensive, right, when they try hard not to be offensive. So you get, you know, book covers like this one um, saying there's somebody going out of their way to not be offensive, right? Wow. Like, oh my gosh. So this is the, he's the Antichrist. No, 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 not him. In fact, the next, the very next option was this one. There you go. Uh, isn't that another good reason to run for office? You too someday could be the top search as the Antichrist in Google. That'd be they'd something to be proud of. Um, Every president. It happens every time. Russian premieres, tyrants, rock stars, um, daytime talk show hosts, especially Oprah. Boy, she gets lots of attention as the Antichrist. Um, Tech executives, celebrities, machines, credit cards, economic philosophies, entire religions have been named the Antichrist. Harry Potter was the Antichrist in one place. Um, We even found, John found one that argued that Barney the dinosaur was maybe the Antichrist. Um, which I don't know. I'm I'm gonna dig some more into that one. So um, it's it's a it's a crazy thing to consider. This um, one of my classes that we had to try to figure out using the names and numbers, and I was actually assigned to make the case that Billy Graham was the Antichrist. So to prove that anybody could be if you twisted things enough. Um, here's what we do know about this horn, this beast. Apparently, it's a person of great political power and influence. Um, The one predicted in Daniel, for example, is a leader who displaces others, um, not from his own power, maybe the power of Satan, like the one in Revelation 13. Um, You you look for the concept of Rome, which had ten provinces. We talked about the European Union and others, that as people see these, maybe that's how the last one plays out. Most importantly, that you can spot them because they are a hater of God's people, overtly, unafraid, unashamedly a hater of God's people, and this person will declare themselves God at some point. Maybe even again do so at the temple, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did, just like Titus did. Um, So that's going to require a new temple. That's why sometimes people are looking for that to happen. Um, It is fun to me, being in Israel a few times, I've had every different viewpoint expressed to me of one guy, one one guide saying that he that there are Jews like him around the country who are armed and ready to take the Temple Mount whenever they're told to. We have another one who was like, no, that's not how that works. God will bring all the religions together under him, and there will be a new temple built there. Um, that feels very revelation-y. Um, others saying, no, there's room on the Temple Mount to build to, to keep the mosque where it is and build a temple next to it. And others who say, no, no, with this not even the right temple mount. There's another place that is the actual place so we could build there. It's all, it's all a bunch of speculation and discussion. We'll see. In any case, we don't get afraid 
We may pay close attention to certain things, but we don't have to get afraid because we know how the cycle plays out. If the prophecies are any way literal, and if we're here when it's happened, when it happens, the last one, it shouldn't be hard to spot. It shouldn't be hard to miss somebody who's doing miracles after being wounded in the head and not dying. It shouldn't be hard to be able to see some of these things played out, whatever they're like, if it's literal and if it's in the future. But notice this last phrase, this last verse in this chapter. So once again, you expect the design pattern to play out here in verse 28. So listen closely to this, especially if you're afraid. Especially if you're dealing with the emotions of our current situation with a lot of fear and trembling. You're not alone. Daniel was too. Verse 28 says this, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He was so afraid that the blood drained out of him as he looked at this. As we're discussing this, Paul made an excellent point that isn't it cool that Daniel gives us insight into his experience, what he's feeling in this. So he looked ahead and sure enough, 827, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I didn't understand it. Chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. 10, 10 through 12, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. When he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. 12.13 says this, the last kind of instruction to Daniel in the midst of all of his emotions and his fear is this, But go your way till the end. You shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So there you go. Daniel, keep doing what you've been doing. Stay faithful. Do it the way you've always done it. Stay on target. Stick with the path. Don't turn to the right or the left. Do what you've been doing. So though we face these challenges, and we may, there's every reason to believe that we're kind of on that upward curve, I think, in our culture in regards to this. As we're starting to see, for example, we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks this worldview that says even the thought that someone would submit to God over man is offensive. That someone would say, no, no, God, what God says is more important to me than what you all say. They're going to be questioned for whether or not that is a moral thing to do. Is that a right stance to take? And we're going to get to see that. So we shouldn't be surprised. Of course the world hates that mindset. And we'll see that more and more played out. The good news is, just like with Daniel, we keep doing what we're doing. We stick with what he's called us to do. That that persecution, which may drive us out of our comfort, drive us out of the air conditioning, drive us out of the comfortable seats, that's often how God spreads the good news. So if we face that, we stay strong. Even if we're ground down to powder, the good news is, It's not about us. We're just vessels of clay. God's glory and His grace is what those are what shine out. So may it be for each and all of us. Stand with me and let's pray. So God, I do pray that you would help us to stay faithful, to go our way till the end. 
to stand by your word, to not falter, knowing that the victory isn't dependent upon us. That in the end, it's not other humans stepping in to make things right, but in fact, it is you. You've done that in the small way in our own lives. We each represent this cycle, the king inside of each of us, the Lord of our own life, the beast inside of us that wants to rise up in power to be our own God. That for those of us who have trusted your Lord and you as your son, as Lord, that you have, you have come in and judged that beast, that emperor, that philosophy, and driven it to its knees. We put our faith in you. And Lord, I pray that for our nation, that that would happen, that we would see an awakening and a confession and a repentance. If not, Lord, even so, as your followers, we know how this ends. So that's our confidence. May not be excited about going through this part of the cycle, but we can have faith in you. Thank you, Father. Give us that faith in your Son's name. Amen. So however the Spirit leads you as, as we're going to be singing here to respond, if that makes you sad and depressed, focus in on how this is going to end. Focus in on figuring out what it's going to take to stay strong through all of this, if that's what it is. Whatever it is, whatever the Spirit has for us, we submit that. We submit ourselves to Him. If you've already gone through the Welcome Home team and talked to some people and you're ready to come and join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you. You can do that during this time. Or if you need to come and pray about anything, go ahead and do that where you are or wherever. So be listening to what the Spirit says. Guys.